go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 5, verse 21, which I think could be found on page 30 of your scripture journals. This week, we can, we, we're going to continue our series through the gospel of Mark, and we sort of kind of conclude a, a mini-series that Mark has set up for us. Um, Mark has sort of stringed uh, three ideas, kind of put three events together in, in, in order to, to give us a, sort of a trilogy of power, right? Uh, uh, three subsequent stories of miracles portraying to us the power and the authority of Jesus over the different spheres of this world, The first miracle shows us Christ's power over the forces of nature, right? We we see his power and authority over creation. A great storm had stirred but was rebuked, causing a great calm in its place. Our second miracle was over spiritual forces. Demons numbering in the thousands were no match for Jesus, and they were cast away to be drowned in the sea, but that caused a divisive reaction among everyone participating in this moment. And now this morning we come to our third miracles over sickness and death. Our first scene containing two miracles, I should say, uh, uh, over sickness and death. But in each of these moments, we, we, we got not just a, a showing of power, but also the heart of Jesus towards people. At the moment of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, this storm caused in the disciples a a great fear that caused them to question the love of Christ towards them. They could not, what they could not see was that the storm was there to test their faith, not test God's love for them. It provided them a context to trust in everything they just heard Jesus preach just a few minutes before. What we see from Jesus in response to the disciples' fear and questioning is concern. Jesus is concerned about their trust in him. It wasn't that the storm awoke him, but it was their cries that woke him. And though the boat took a beating, it never sank. It was never in any real danger because he was with them and told them they would go to the other side. The disciples seeing Jesus exercise his power over the storm caused them to have a great awe. They said, who is is he that even the winds and the seas obey him? Who Jesus was, who Jesus revealed himself to be in that moment caused worship in them. In the second moment of power, we see that Jesus' concern for the demoniac reaches across ritual living, like literally. Jesus touches and speaks to someone who is considered unclean. And then and then and and there at that time, that's a that's a huge social no-no. You don't speak to anyone who's unclean. You don't touch anyone who is unclean. But what we see happen is Jesus' very presence makes it possible for this demon-possessed man to resist those demons and run towards him. 
And Jesus not only heals this man from thousands of demons, but saves his soul and calls him into mission by empowering him to be a missionary to the Gentile region. The crowds, the witnesses of this event respond to Jesus with a different kind of fear that we've seen in the disciples. The disciples had a great awe. The crowds here have a horror, a negative fear. The crowds, they, they send Jesus away. They tell him to go back where he came from, which, which also shows us that Jesus came to the city for the one man. He came for the one man. He didn't go to liberate the entire city. He liberated the one man, a Gentile man at that. He just flips in this one scene, the whole social order on its head. He knew he was going to get sent away by the crowd. That didn't surprise him. Maybe the disciples were like, oh, we came here for nothing, but not Jesus. He knew he was going there for the demoniac and gladly went. Even though he knew he would be sent away into now the dead pig infested sea to go back into Capernaum. And this is where we pick up our text this morning, looking to the events that take place when Jesus returns to where he left from just a day ago. And I've titled our time together, Jesus Has the Final Say. Jesus Has the Final Say. And I, I want us to pay careful attention to this main idea in all of life. The last word is Christ. When disappointment speaks, when doubt speaks, even when death speaks, Jesus gets the final word. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning. Mark chapter five, starting in verse 21. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing you and yet you say who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Holy and righteous God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us ears to hear your word for us this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, for softened hearts, for receptive minds. Father, would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher and gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to confess to you this morning that there have been many times in my life that I haven't dealt with interruptions well. Uh, particularly when my full attention and energy is in a focused place. It's one of the reasons why we have this rule in my house that when I'm in my office and the door is closed, the kids cannot, or the, the doors are open, I should say, the kids can come in and out as much as they want. When the doors are open, they can interrupt me, they can grab my attention, they can come in and play, they can do as much as they want. They can call me, they can stop whatever I'm doing, I'll drop, I'll go attend to them. But when the door is closed, you can't interrupt daddy. Daddy is doing something important because the truth is I'm not good at at the balancing act. I'm not. I'm not good at picking something up. Not finishing, putting it down, starting a new thing, not finishing that, returning to the... I, I, can't, I can't do that. I can't intertwine those two things well. I need to assess and determine what's important and what's not important. And then that decides where my energy goes. Does that make sense? I'm not crazy? Thanks. I appreciate the verbal feedback. But I'm like that with everything. I'm like that with my free time. I'm like, I just, I'm like that with everything. I can't start, stop halfway, start something else. I just can't do it. My wife, she likes to move more freely and flexibil- more flexible. She, she has a lot more flexibility to her day. She can pick something up, put it down, pick something else up, put it down. And so she breaks the door closed rule all the time. And it's, it's hard, hard for me. So pray for me. This morning's text has Jesus at the center of two very difficult situations. The world that Mark paints for us, though, 
in this text is not unlike our world today. It should be familiar to you. It's a world that is marred by sin, where hard things, painful things are part of the human experience. The realities of these situations convey for us a sense of hopelessness. A father facing the death of his child. That's not supposed to happen, right? Parents outlive their children. That's how age works, right? You can feel this man's helplessness in this moment. I mean, if you can, I mean could you give yourself just a little bit to the weight of this text? This man's daughter is rapidly slipping into the hands of of death. The other experience is a woman who's suffering something both chronic and severe. Something that has created permanent adjustments and discomforts in her life. She is facing something that has changed her private world. It's also changed her social world. She's run to every place she could for help. She has emptied her entire savings account. She has suffered more under the people whose job it is to help her. That's not supposed to happen. Going to the doctors for help should not create more pain, more discomfort. What the Bible says, suffering. On top of that, shouldn't make you broke. Now, medical professionals don't take that to heart. What, was, what, what is her condition at this time, there was nothing known about anything that could help her. I mean, if you read what some of the remedies were that this woman had to go through, they were ridiculous. This, they had no idea what they're doing. Kent Hughes cites this one. He says, take her to a place where two ways meet. Let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind, frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. That was a remedy for this woman's issue of blood. They had no idea what they were doing. But now her reality doesn't change. She has no money, no social status, no cure for her illness. And this world with both of these moments are not just for this particular part of the planet and not for this particular part of time. No, this is still the case now. This world that Mark paints for us is also familiar to us because it's a world where faith is a war. This is not uncommon ground in Mark's gospel. More specifically in our trilogy of power. Are you going to trust Jesus's power and words and put your life on that line? Will Jesus be your rock? Will Jesus be your hope? Will Jesus be the motivation for the way that you live all of your life? Will you do that, church, in a world that is constantly sowing seeds of doubt in you? Will you do that, church, in a world whose gospel message is faith is unreliable and effort is the way of life? And you press for a life, family, 
that preaches faith beyond reason, not just for your soul, but for your life's actions. And not just for your life, but for your children's soul and their lives. This is already preaching to me this morning. Both of these moments are not emotionally or cognitively unfamiliar to us. Maybe this isn't your story or maybe it is and I don't know. But there is weight for us to hold this morning when we read this text. There is weight that big brother Mark wants us to feel before he lands the plane on this trilogy, mini series in the series. Both are stories of hopelessness despite their social context. You have one person from a wealthy position and the other from poverty. You have one person who is socially held in high regard, seen as important, a leader in the community, and the other who is socially outcasted, systematically ostracized from community, barred from any place of worship. The realities of these two people could not be more opposite and yet they find themselves both Jairus and this woman in the same state hopeless verse 21 through 24 gives us a backdrop when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Here's the thing. Jesus comes back to the Galilean side of the sea and is met by a great crowd. Probably it is the crowd that he left there just a day before when he went to go cross to the other side, to the Gerasenes. But as they're in this reuniting, as they're here sort of talking at the shore, we encounter our first interruption. A man named Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue, sees Jesus, runs to him, and falls at his feet. We know because of the Greek here that Jairus was an official who was responsible for the physical management of the synagogue. William Lane, in his commentary, believes that he was the head ruler of the synagogue, which means he was a man of wealth and prestige. He was also a respectable leader in the community. It also shows that, the, that though the majority were, not all the religious leaders were hostile to Jesus. But we find Jairus, the man who has all earthly and religious recipes for joy in a state of hopelessness. His daughter was dying and he begs earnestly and humbly that Jesus come put his hands on her so that she may live. I love that. Jesus' healing touch is widely known. 
Jairus was confident that if Jesus could come and touch his daughter, she would be healed. This is faith in a world of doubt. Think about this. His establishment already marked this man a blasphemer. His establishment, people in his order are already plotting Jesus's death. We've seen this in our study of Mark so far. And now Jairus is bowing before him humbly in front of everyone, no matter what his jobs say, no matter what his friends say, doing what he trusts will deliver his daughter. The cost of what people say means nothing right now. The gratification of the court of public opinion is not a motivating factor for him. And look how our king response interrupted in what he's doing stops everything and tells Jairus to lead the way no hesitation no contemplation no dealing with something first straight action Jesus says let's go and of course the crowd follows too what comes next must have been incredibly painful for Jairus though verse 25 There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all the money she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports. That's the key right there. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. The crowd around Jesus and Jairus is immense. And in the middle of hurrying to the home of Jairus, there is someone else who has heard about the healing touch of Jesus and what it will do for them. There is in this crowd another weary soul, another person in need. And in this very detailed description of her, we have a terribly sad story. She had an incurable disease of discharged blood that makes her ritually unclean. You remember our time with the leper outside the city? She was just about on the same status. She wasn't allowed to touch anyone. She must shout unclean wherever she went so that people would be aware that she was someone who was unclean. Everyone had to keep away from her. But that's just one part that we get in the description of her. The other part of the story is that she suffered under many physicians. She has been abused, taken advantage of, experimented on because they couldn't heal her, much less diagnose her. So she was subject to all kinds of suffering. And lastly, she spent all she had. And it was no wonder. It was no wonder. This woman spent all her money to be well, all her money to find a cure. She did everything, and her life has dramatically changed for the worse. And yet, the courage to jump in the middle of that crowd and reach for the hem of Jesus' garment persisted. 
That is audacious faith, desperate, yes, but audacious, bold, courageous faith also. She has set her mind on fighting through this crazy huge crowd just to touch his garment, to touch, not to grab, not to pull, not to beg. She's saying, I need to touch him and I won't stop until I do. I'm unclean. He won't stop for me. I'm unclean. He can't touch me. I'd make him unclean. I need to disguise myself in this crowd and touch when everyone else is touching him. She heard the reports. She heard the reports. That means she heard the testimony of Jesus's ability to do what she needs to be done. She heard about the demon-possessed man in the synagogue of this same city. She heard about the leper who's outside this same city. She heard about the paralytic dropped in from the roof. She heard about the full day of healings performed outside Peter's home. And she says in verse 28, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. She kept telling herself, if I touch it, I'll be okay. I'll do it so he won't notice me. I don't want to bother him. Jairus needs his attention right now. But this is my moment. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She does it. She does it. She does it. She reaches out and touches him. And immediately she knew. The Greek says it was an experience. She knew by way of experience. She felt a change, a healing. Her blood dried up and she was well. Her faith proved right. When everything in this world preached to her that getting better was out of the question, when the doctor says, there's nothing I can do for you, when she spent every dollar she had worked for to find help and help never came, Jesus walks into the town and she says, there's my guy. He can save me. He can heal me. I just need to touch him. And it worked. The same power that calmed the sea, the same power that cast out demons, has now healed an incurable disease. Jesus' power without word. Without word. Healed her without anyone in the crowd knowing. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Verse 30. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him and immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Jesus knew that he just healed someone. Jesus knew. And he knew it was the woman too, right? He knew it was the one. We've seen this. He is an all-knowing God. Why would an all-knowing Jesus stop the crowd and ask, who touched me, when he knows good and well who did it and why? I love the disciples' response here. Jesus is like, who touched me? And they're like, dude, everyone is. I'm touching you right now. Like, what do you mean? Jesus says, no, this touch was different. 
Someone touched me and I want them to step out. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Because you can't just use Jesus. Oh man, don't miss this. You can't just use Jesus. There, 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 there are some who claim to have a relationship with Jesus, but do not live in the relationship they say they have. Jesus will not be your mascot. He wants a relationship with you. You are not a bother to him. You can interrupt him in the most dire time, in the most crazy situation that you could be in, and you are no bother to him. Jesus calls for this woman to come out. She wanted to remain unnoticed. She didn't want to be troublesome or a bother to Jesus. She didn't want Jesus to now have to be considered unclean since an unclean person just touched him. Imagine she is joyful, fearful in an awestruck way. Because she's been healed and now Jesus is calling out to her to stand before the crowd. This isn't for his own sake. Jesus is not flexing. Jesus is not. Jesus's disposition is like, hold on, guys. I just healed someone. <laughs> I just healed someone. I didn't even know. I, did. I just healed. Hey, person who I just healed, why don't you come on out? Let's just tell everyone what happened. That's not Jesus's disposition here. He's doing it for her sake. And Jairus' sake. Her faith, the woman's faith, was sketchy. It was presumptuous. It wasn't fully formed. And yet Jesus wants to affirm her and honor it still. Jesus wants to build a relationship with her. Our family, you have broken faith this morning. You have broken faith this morning. Some of you have wavering faith. Some of you have doubt-filled faith. Some of you have a new faith. Some of you are young in age and you're probably wondering, is this my faith or is this my parents' faith? But family, the truth is, you don't need perfect faith. You don't need perfect faith. You don't need a fully articulated faith. You don't even need a a fully informed faith. Christ can make you whole just as you are. Don't miss it. Do not miss it. Christ is the one who does the work of restoring and reconciling. Christ is the one who does the work of healing and empowering. Christ is the one who invites you to step out into the light so that he can call you son, so that he can call you daughter and say, your faith is made perfect in me, family. God still does this work today. He still heals today and he still takes broken faith doubt-filled faith and makes it whole in himself. It's Jesus at the center of our faith and Jesus at the center of our lives holding all this brokenness together. But notice that Jesus has just been interrupted from something important and yet stops everything to call this woman to come out. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Family, she, she knew, she knew 
She was the only one who knew what Jesus was talking about when he stopped time to ask who touched him. She was the only one who knew. Everyone else is perplexed. The disciples are like, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? Jairus is probably panicking right now. Why are we stopping? She comes out in humility and fear. We've seen this before. It's the same fear that the disciples had in the boat after the storm. It's a great awe, a great reverence. And with all power, empowered, courage and gratitude told him everything. And now she is met not with shame, not with condemnation, not with anger or dispassion. She's met with with the only recorded use of this title by Jesus to ever exist she's met with love she's met with compassion she's met with attention she's met with the affirmation daughter daughter while everyone is vying for the attention of jesus his attention is for one and one only daughter the woman with imperfect and infantile faith daughter Here's the thing, family. Faith, faith's value. Faith's value is not determined by the person who possesses it, but rather the object it rests in. This woman didn't have a faith in her ability to touch Jesus's garment. She had a faith that Jesus had the power to heal her, and that granted her the relational title of daughter. Some of you have more faith in your ability to deliver a result than Jesus' ability to save, heal, reconcile, or love you. Jesus is not like an earthly father who can't be interrupted when he's focused and busy on something important. Rather, Jesus is like his perfectly heavenly father who is never too busy for you and you can come to him with all your pain, all your suffering, all your doubt, all your questions, all your guilt, all your fear and still can make you whole. In the midst of all this beauty though, think about how Jairus must feel in this moment. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, So Jesus still talking to the woman. There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, if you're a highlighter, that's that's the highlighted word right there, overhearing. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. While Jesus is speaking to the woman, someone else is speaking to Jairus. They deliver to him the worst news imaginable. They deliver to him the worst news. As Jesus is having this wonderful, wholesome, life-giving moment with the woman, Jairus just received life-threatening news. His daughter has just died. Jairus' heart hits the bottom of his stomach. I mean, feel all the feelings he must be feeling in this moment. Finding Jesus, pleading with him to come, caused a great hope. And yet in this moment, on the way there, full of hope and wonder, 
that Jesus will save his daughter now gets the report that his daughter has died. This moment is literally like a slammed door in the heart. It's the worst news imaginable, and yet Jesus is unwavering. I love, I love the Greek here for the word overhearing. It's ignored. It's ignored. Jesus, Jesus is talking to the woman. Here's the proclamation of the messengers. Hey, Jairus, your daughter is dead. And what happens is Jesus doesn't accept it. He ignores it. They don't get the last word. He does. And he looks at Jairus and he tells him, don't fear, just believe. Jesus' instruction is clear. Jesus' instruction is clear. Don't abandon your faith in me. I did not fail. This woman's healing was a test of Jairus' faith. Once again, context has been provided for what the followers of Jesus know to be practiced in life. Jesus is saying to Jairus with this sentence, that's not the final word. I have the final word. Cling to the same faith you had when you came to me. I said, I will go to your home. And I said, I will heal your daughter. This moment, this proclamation changes nothing. Jairus' fear that this moment has preached to him is that death has power. Jesus does not. Oh, it's all right, man. You don't got to shout amen to that. In this moment, it's preaching to Jairus that Jesus can't help because death rules. Any hope of healing is now gone now that she's dead. And yet somehow, somehow, Jairus is empowered to have faith again. Can I contend to you something, family? That Jesus once again has provided Jairus with the faith he cannot possess on his own. Can I contend that the faith that Jairus expressed in coming to Jesus at the very beginning and bowing down the faith that the woman had to touch his garment when she first saw him didn't come from inside themselves but only came like the demoniac when Jesus' presence existed. Oh, family, there is something about the presence of Jesus in this moment. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? You don't have the faith to come to Christ. You don't have the faith to come to Christ. You don't have the faith to touch the hem of his garment. You don't have the faith to produce an effort of results on your own. But when Jesus is present, you can be empowered to have that faith. Jairus in this moment has just been told, likely from a relative, that his daughter is now dead. How can you have faith that Jesus could raise the dead? Think about everything we just read in this book. We, 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 we've been here. We've left no stone unturned in any of Mark's words up to this point. Raising the dead is not a thing on the list of services Jesus provides to the city. It doesn't exist. There is nothing that tells us up to this moment that this man from Nazareth has the power to literally bring someone back to life. And yet, and yet Jairus is empowered to believe it. Verse 38. 
It came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping, and they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, that's Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. They, they, they come to the house, the four of them, Jairus, Jesus, or five of them, Jairus, Jesus, Peter, James, John, they come to the house. And at that time, if you were wealthy or you had status, professional mourners, that's crazy, would come and <laughs> when a loved one died, they would come and they would weep and they would mourn and they would sing songs of lament for you, essentially performed you a service to help you grieve. Jesus... Jairus and the three disciples get there, and the first thing Jesus does is rebuke everyone. He tells them, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. Why, why are you making this mess? There's a lot of back and forth among commentators on this line, that she's only sleeping, that she's not dead. I appreciate what Kent Hughes' thoughts are here. Sorry you could tell that his commentary was my favorite this time for prep. Kent Hughes says this, he says, real death, real death is the separation of the soul from God. Real death is the separation of the soul from God, not the body from the soul. In this sense, her dead body was asleep and Jesus would bring it back to life. All of the friends and the relatives and professional mourners there laughed at Jesus scornfully. They have no faith in his words. They all believe the girl is beyond resurrection, but not Jesus. He kicks them all out of the house. I love that. Takes everyone and puts them outside. Kicks them all out of the house. That's, you know, that's some authority. You go into somebody else's house and kick out the people who are there. That's crazy. But he takes the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. He takes Jairus and his wife, and they go to the room where the daughter is laying. Verse 41, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. All right, y'all, I'm about to show my whole face. Uh, I'm a continuist through and through. I'm not even going to buffer it with condemning bad continuists because we as a people just need to be better about saying what's true without qualifying every little thing. I believe that the gifts, the miraculous gifts, all of them are alive and well today. I hope that we would be a church that would seek the gifts in a biblical and God-glorifying way. I believe that Jesus has the authority and power to heal today just like this. I believe that faith, the thing that is given to us by God, not something of our own merit and will, faith that is given to us by God is the kind of faith that has permeated this entire text. Faith that Jairus and his wife have here. Faith like the leper just a few pages back. They didn't tell Jesus what to do. They didn't tell Jesus what to do. They simply said in their hearts, Lord, I know you're able. Are you willing? 
It's an unreasonable faith. It's a, it's a faith that listens and trusts when everything else says not to. It's a faith that when the world says it can't happen, when the friends say it can't happen, when the journalists say it can't happen, when scientists say it can't happen, when the doctors say it can't happen, it's a faith that says Jesus gets the final word and whatever that is, I'm good with. It's a faith that says, Lord, I know you can. Are you able? Or I know you're able. Are you willing? So I'm going to hold out these hands and plead to you that you will. I don't know about you, church. But we need a Jairus and a woman kind of faith. A God-given faith. To trust what he says, to trust his power, to trust his will, to trust his holiness, to hold out our hands and say, I know you can, I know you're able, will you? Will you save? Will you heal? Will you deliver? Everyone in this room is experiencing something so incredibly profound, an actual resurrection. An actual resurrection. They were experiencing the tender words and touch of Jesus raising the dead to life. Dead eyes awaking to life. Cold skin becoming warm again. A heart beating after it's already stopped. This is the scene in this small room. It's unbelievable. Verse 42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they immediately were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. There's no after effects. There's no after effects. She wasn't sick. There's no after effect. She's fully healed. And I love that Mark reminds us of her age. She's, you know, she's walking and talking like a 12-year-old. Right? That's what what Mark's doing here. She's walking and talking because she's 12. Right? Everyone is amazed. They're literally out of their minds with awe. And Jesus gives them two commands. The first, he says, don't tell anyone. The reason why he kicked everyone out of the house. It's the reason why he didn't allow the crowds to follow. He said, don't tell anyone. Jesus didn't want people coming to him for the wrong reasons. We've seen this happen before. They're already doing it with healing. Can you imagine raising the dead? But the second thing, and the more important thing, was to give the girl food. This was to prove two things in my mind. That one, she was actually well. She wasn't a ghost or a phantom. She, she's, she's actually here. She, she's hungry. You see what I'm saying? She's actually been restored to life. Okay? She's not invincible. Okay? She's back in her vulnerable humanity. Give her food. And two, to separate to the apostles who were in the room the difference between this healing resurrection and soon like we'll see with Lazarus coming up 
and what will be Jesus' soon-to-be bodily resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is not going to be like this. It's going to be significantly different. Significantly different. Jesus is returning full in body, not to frail humanity, but to glory. Oh, church. Some of you, some of you are facing, or one day will face things you'd never thought you'd have to face. Things in this life that will provide a context for your faith to be tested in family. You need to know this. Jesus gets the final word. When disappointment speaks, be comforted by the words of the king. When doubt speaks, speak back to the doubt that Jesus gets the last word. When sickness speaks, when death presumes the final word, know that Jesus says that death is not the end and he'll prove it with his own life because there is only one who rules over all the things of this earth, one who has power to calm the seas, one to rebuke the forces of evil, one to heal the sick, and one to give life to the dead, and his name is Jesus. Would you stand with me in worship?